Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the book of John once again. We have, uh, we have really worked on John. Uh, the next time we pick up where we left off, it'll be the 56th sermon in the book of John and uh, learning a few things. But as you know, uh, Pastor Andrew and I sat down and uh, we made a little plan about a two-week event. We were going to go back to John chapter 1 and look, about, look at this whole entrance into the world of the Son of God. And I'm so glad that he came. Last week, we looked at back to the beginning. That was John 1, 1 to 14. He mainly did 1 through 13. And uh, I'm picking it up at verse 14, and we're going to go through verse number 18. And we're going to look at that today. So, uh, as we are in this room this morning, it's Christmas Eve, and I know that we all have had, still have, and will have gifts on our minds for a little while. We may be thinking about the right gifts that we bought for different people. We may be thinking, was that the right gift for Billy? Or did Hortense really need that? You know, I mean, we may be, we may be thinking about that. Or we may think, was, was that what you would call it exactly what that little boy or my grandson needed? Maybe, as I say, gifts, and I mention names, maybe you're remembering somebody that you forgot. Don't worry, I checked this morning, went online, found out Walmart is open all day long. And so you can certainly get on over there. I'm, I'm a Wally World guy myself, and so... I get over there when I can to get the things I need. Our commercialized Christmas has had an effect on all of us, of course, and we do get a little carried away, I think, but I'm sure. To be honest, I'm very positive that the spirit of gifts and giving is not altogether bad. Uh, Pastor Andrew talked about his must-see Christmas movies last week. I've got my own list, and I agree with him on some. I got a couple of additions. <laughs> I love Christmas with the Cranks. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Uh, that, that's, that's just, you know, I mean, what's that guy's name that makes everybody in the neighborhood put up all their Christmas stuff? I think that's cool. Um, and then It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, that's one you got to watch. And then I, I can't let a Christmas go by without watching A Christmas Carol. I got to see the old one with George C. Scott. And uh, I don't know, Marley and Scrooge and the Three Spirits and Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim, they kind of get to me. <laughs> the problem with Scrooge was that he was a miser and he was self-absorbed and he had no compassion and he loved money and possessions more than he did people. I'm afraid his spirit, though he had a change, I'm afraid that spirit is still alive and well in the world today. But if nothing else, I think Christmas touches our hearts and opens our billfolds and purses more than any other time of the year. Giving is good. Amen. Giving is good. In fact, you're, no more, you're never more like God than when you're giving. Giving. I want to go back and pick up where Brother Andrew left off. And before anything, are you comfortable? I want to make sure everybody's got a seat and everybody's comfortable. If you're comfortable, please stand back up, would you? And let's go to John chapter 1 and verse 14. And in honor of the Word of God... The words are on the screen, and this time I'm going to invite you to read all of it with me, just a few verses, verse 14 through 18. Ready? Let's read together. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. 
For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And our Father, thank you for the privilege of being together, along with our family of friends in church today, as we celebrate and think about this uh, very important time of year. It's just a date on a calendar for us today, but it's an event in history that forever changed the world when you came and took on human flesh. Thank you for this uh, time together this morning. And whether we're in a big auditorium with lots of people like this, or as it is in many cases around the world, some of your children hiding, hiding because they can't openly profess their faith, I pray, Father, that you would meet with us and meet with them. I pray that you would encourage every discouraged pastor. I pray that you would encourage every missionary and national pastor, Lord, that is facing great difficulty, discouragement, hardship because of the gospel's sake. And I pray, Father, that this time of year would remind them of your coming and that you're coming again. Thank you, dear Jesus. For the cross. Thank you for the manger, for the cross, for the empty tomb. Thank you that you came. And help us now as we talk about the gifts of Christmas in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Let's talk about some gifts. One of the characteristics of the end times, the Bible says the end of the age is going to be uh, that there will be many scoffers, many mockers, and they will say silly things like, you know, nothing ever happens, nothing has ever happened. Everything continues like it always has. Second uh, Peter 3 says this, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? And listen to, these, listen to these words. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In, in a sense, these mockers are saying, nothing changes. Nothing ever happens. Life is redundant. It's repetitive. It's boring. It's kind of the same thing that King Solomon was saying in his book, Ecclesiastes, with his phrase, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Chapter 1, verse 4, let me read a section. It says, one generation passes away and another generation comes. The earth abides forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls around continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. The place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. I think we misinterpret that sometimes as saying this is some sort of prophecy of the fact that there's nothing new under the sun. The whole point is the redundancy and the vanity and the repetitiveness and the can't, no matter how hard you work at things, it seems like you're chasing your tail or chasing the wind. And he said it over and over and over in the book. And it just in, he's saying the same thing the people in Second Peter chapter 3 are saying. It all just continues. Nothing ever changes. Sun up, sun down. River runs. River just keeps running. How it works. We... It's just redundant because nothing ever happens. What we just read was the beginning of the event 
the happening that changes everything. Something happened. The four words which began the chapter was the word became flesh. And they expressed the reality of this, that the incarnation of God, when God took on humanity and infinite became finite and eternity entered time and the invisible became visible and the creator entered his creation. Uh, the verb or the word became, it comes from the word genomai, which means it expresses that a person or thing changes its property and in, enters into a new condition, becomes something that it was not before. The tense is aorist, and that means it implies a definite, completed action. There's no going back on the incarnation. The act of self-humbling on the part of God in the person of Jesus is irreversible. He is forever Emmanuel. And what what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. Say that with me. Emmanuel means God with us forever. He is Emmanuel. I want to talk in terms of this, these gifts of Christmas. And here are three. And the first one I want to give you from the passage we read is, is that Jesus is a gift from the Father. He's a gift from the Father. His presence is a gift. I don't want to miss the significance of these words this morning. Don't want to do a big theology lesson, but don't miss this. The first phrase, the word became flesh. It means Jesus became relatable to us. He, he became in a form that we could understand. Spirit became flesh. Many times in the scriptures when we see the word flesh, it has a negative meaning like the works of the flesh or fleshly works, speaking of evil. But here it just simply means a fleshly body. Well, all the characteristics, capabilities, and limitations and necessities. Pastor Andrew talked about it last week so beautifully. He talked about, he talked about the word or the word logos in verse 1. And that he was present in the beginning and that he was with God and that he was God and that he was the agent of creation. In Genesis 1, God became active in creation. He did so by his word. Now, get it now. Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. So we have God and we have the word. They're together. Now, watch. And when God became active in creation, he did so by his word. God said let there be light, the division of water, let there be grass, herbs, fruit trees, and let there be this and that. And ultimately, let there be people, men and women, man and woman made in my image. So that logos, the word of God, limited himself to a human body in one location and came to us. They could see him and touch him and talk to him like with any other man. You see, something happened in Bethlehem. The next phrase, and he dwelt among us. This is his presence. God had been present with them before, but not in this form. Back in Exodus, it records all of the preparations that God and his people, the Jews, had done in order to build this elaborate tabernacle, which was the most ornate and expensive tent ever built in history. It was mobile because uh, they were on the move and God was going to move with them. And he went with them and his presence was shown as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night 
but they couldn't see him, his face, or his person and survive. It's stated many times that way. God, as he is seated in heaven, could not be encountered by anyone with any hopes of survival. Moses came the closest to it of anyone in history. Moses in Exodus 33, 20 was told no one could see God's face and survive, so he hid him in a hole in the rock. We used to call it the cleft in the rock. The hole in the rock. He covered his hand, covered his face with his hand, and he passed by, or his goodness and his essence passed by. But even then, after having passed by and been covered and hidden in the hole of the rock, Moses, from the glory and the shine, had to hide his face with a veil every time he stood before the people because he'd been exposed to the glory of God. Can you imagine what it'll be like one day to stand in Revelation 21.3 and dwell with God? But once again, now God is with them, but not like he was with Moses. This time he is God with us as Emmanuel. You see, something happened in Bethlehem. The scoffers say nothing has ever happened. Well, something happened in Bethlehem. We beheld his glory is the next phrase. The Jews in the wilderness couldn't look at the glory of God and live. But the testimony here of John, as he speaks for all the other disciples, is he says, we beheld his glory. Verse 17 said, we received from him. So this is first person testimony, a witness that says Jesus is God. He is Emmanuel. When we say we beheld his glory, that word glory in its simplest form and meaning means weightiness significance or superior perfection. Often when we see it in the scriptures, it's pictured as brightness or unapproachable light. His glory in Jesus is revealed under human limitations, both in himself and those who beheld him. The divine glory flashed out of Christ from time to time when he was on earth. It did. It flashed forth at his transfiguration, and it was blinding, and it just stopped them in their tracks. And then again, through his miracles, time and again, they saw him, and on the water, they said, what, what kind of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? They didn't, what, is the, what are we seeing here? They didn't understand. It blew them away. His glory shone forth in a limited way. And then, of course, in the most beautiful way, his perfection of life and character and his fulfillment of, fulfilled the absolute idea of manhood. He was perfection and he was perfection in a set of sandals. He was the God man and he was perfect. We beheld his glory. That's what they said. Now, this next phrase, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus, it says he's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah, you know, we become sons of God whenever we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are believers in the Lord Jesus today? You have said yes to the Son of God as your Savior. Raise your hand up and say amen. Amen. We are the sons of God, brethren. We know now we are the sons of God. We don't know what we're going to be like, but we know when we're going to see him, we're going to see him as he is, and we're going to be like him, and we're going to be with him forever. We're going to, we're going to be just like Jesus one day. We are sons of God. But this son, the only begotten of the Father is something radically different. He is the monogenes. He's radically distinctive. He is without equal. He's the only one of the kind. He is the great unlike. Do you understand there is no one like Jesus? He is the one and only. It's no wonder that Acts chapter 4 says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Why does he say that? Because there's just one Savior. There's just one mediator. There's just one man named Jesus. There's, there's just one. There's one of him. He's the only begotten son 
of God. Psalm 2-7, I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That doesn't mean he became, went, became, began to exist at that moment. It means he began this, this existence as a human, as a son. He is the son of God. Today I have begotten you. When we are called the sons of God, it's a great privilege. But we're not in the category of the son of God. He was full of grace. It comes from the word kadis, which means he's full of giving and favor without price. We're talking about gifts today, and here is the gift of the Father to us, his Son. The Word who became a man to relate to us and bring us his gifts, he is full of giving graciously, and his gifts lead us to the truth. Jesus is full of giving and full of truth, and I've got so many verses here, I can't even refer to all of them. You see, something happened in Bethlehem. Let me say this different. Someone happened in Bethlehem. Jesus came. Ah, it's so beautiful. Jesus is a gift from the Father. Now, let me give you something else here. Jesus brings us gifts from the Father. He is the gift of the Father, but along with his presence and along with his coming, he brings us gifts from the Father. With his presence comes presence. With his presence, that is his appearance among us, come gifts, presence. And he gives them to us, and it just keeps getting better. These words of his fullness we have all received. Magnificent statement. Verse number 14, it says he is full of grace and truth. And so grace, what is it? It's God's favor. It's his goodwill and kindness. And Jesus is full of this. Jesus oozes goodness. God is love, so guess what Jesus is? Jesus is love. He is the personification of it. Jesus is full of love and he has brought it to us. I'm still captivated by Romans 5, 5. It continues to be one of the most encouraging and enabling verses in the Bible, encouraging and enabling because it encourages me to know that God has loved me to the degree that he has. It's enabling because he's poured out his love in my heart by the Holy Spirit he has given us. He's given me love in my heart so that I can be loving toward other people. Now, just a few moments ago, in the baptistry, you heard several of the people, at least two, maybe three, say that they they just were angry. Guess what? You're never going to conquer that until the Spirit of God pours out the love of God in your heart by the Holy Spirit himself that he gives us. He brings us gifts. (laughs) You know, the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus has bestowed upon us is the presence of God living in our. How many of you, how many of you have to admit that you did have a little bit of an enablement after you got saved than you had before you got saved? Would you raise your hand? A little bit more able to do the right thing, to say the right thing, a little bit more able to put the lid on it. It's because he has poured out his love in our heart. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We can love people specifically because God loved us and because he sent the Holy Spirit to pour out his love in our hearts. If anyone, if loving anybody but yourself is just hard and beyond you, you have to ask yourself the question, is the Holy Spirit present? Verse 14 also says he's full of truth. He's full of grace, this this pouring out of giftedness and gifting to us. He pours out his goodness. 
And he also says he's full of truth, and truth conforms to reality. Truth is sincere. Truth is dependable. Truth is reliable. Truth is authentic. Truth is liberating. Whenever you, whenever you blueprint and balance the car engine, some of you guys will love this, you have to true it up. And when you true it up, you bring it back into specs. You, 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 you bore it out. You do whatever you have to do to bring it into specs. You true it up. You conform it to reality. Conform it to the specification. Conform it to what it's supposed to be. And you know what Jesus does? He brings truth to us. Do you want to really have a life that's different than receive the grace of God and conform yourself to the truth of God? Isn't that the Christian life? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to walk by faith. We're supposed to receive his grace and we're supposed to conform our life to the truth of his word. And what is Jesus full of? He is full of grace and truth. And if you've received Jesus, you've received grace. And if you've received Jesus, you've received truth. Now you become exercised in the truth When you read it, think about it, meditate on it, study it, and yield to it. It'll help you so much. Grace for grace. Truth is in short supply today. Jesus is full of truth. These are the amazing gifts. And then comes this. And grace for grace. Back in 14, the word dwelt was used. It says that the that he that the uh, the that God came in the person of Jesus and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That word dwelt. It's the word tabernacle or tabernacled or pitch his tent. It refers to God's presence in the wilderness with his people by way of the tabernacle. I talked about it a moment ago, that expensive tent. And here in verse 17 it says, and we go back to the wilderness phrase, for the law was given through Moses. That goes all the way back to that time in the wilderness when they were walking around and God was present with them in the, in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of cloud, as he hovered above the mercy seat there at that tabernacle, he was present among them in that form. And the way he related to them was through the giving of the law. The law was given through Moses and the giving of the law was not insignificant or unkind. In fact, it was the gracious for God to tell his people what he was like. It was gracious for him to tell him what he re- tell them what he required. It was gracious for God to tell them in Leviticus how they might approach him and how they might please him. Listen to Deuteronomy 4, 7. It talks about the Israel and why they were so blessed. What great nation is there? That God is so near to as is, as is the Lord our God to us for whatever reason we may call on him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments and are in this law which I set before you this day? So, folks, we're not supposed to disregard the Old Testament and the law. It is the law of God that leads us to Christ. Without the law, we wouldn't know what sin was. Without the law of God, we wouldn't know we'd offended God. Without the law of God, we wouldn't know we're not supposed to be greedy and covetous, as Paul said. The law slays us, but the law points us to Christ. God gives grace on grace. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 says the law leads us like a schoolmaster to Christ. And God gives grace on grace. It means grace abounding. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says, and I'm not going to quote it or read it. It just says this in essence, that God's favor and kindness toward us is so great. His favor and kindness toward us is so great 
that it will take eternity for the unfolding and unveiling and all of his graces that he has toward us. What are we going to be doing in eternity? We're going to be, you know, sitting on a cloud playing a harp. A harp. Is that what we're going to No, no, no. What we're going to be doing is experiencing, understanding, and coming to grips with the endless grace of God. His goodness, his kindness, his gifts toward us. I'm so glad Jesus came. Third and finally, Jesus brings us the gift of knowing the Father. The gift of knowing the Father, and I've got to read it in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, that is the one and only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He's right there with him. He's right at his side. Who is in the bosom of the Father? He has declared him. So I want to finish this in a reasonable time here very shortly. We have a special traditional Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock today and going to say and do some things that we haven't done before. I pray that you'll come back and just enjoy this great time together. Just a wonderful, wonderful celebration. It's a one-hour service. But I want to finish this up this morning and looking at this verse 18. And I need to read it in several versions for you to get the weight of this verse. The New King James, we always read, says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Here's what the NASB says, New American Standard. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained Him. The ESV says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right side He has made him known. And the New Living Translation, which many of you read this last year, no one has ever seen God but the unique one who is himself God, near to the Father's heart, he has revealed God to us. Jesus is the exegesis, explanation, and exposition of God the Father. In John chapter 14, Philip was saying, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said, Thomas, have I been with you so long and you don't recognize me? If you've seen me, you've seen everything you can see of the Father. Who is this? Who came to Bethlehem? What is this event? Why is it a, why is it? possible for me to say something happened in Bethlehem. Someone happened in Bethlehem. Something started in Bethlehem. You know what happened right there is God came to dwell among us and his name is Emmanuel and it means God with us. And because of the rest of the book of John, we know that he's God in us. How many of your believers in Jesus today say amen? Amen. Don't ever let the devil tell you that God has abandoned you because he took up residence in you. He lives in you. John chapter 6, he says, I'm not just going to be in front of you, beside you, and I'm not going to just walk with you, but the Father, I, and the Holy Spirit, we're all coming. We're taking up residence. We're going to be with you. The Father loves you, the Son loves you, and the Holy Spirit lives in you and reminds you of those things. He's with us. So what is this? God's gift is his son. God's gifts are in his son, and knowing God is only possible through his son. This word son, we just keep getting it. Let's put things together. This great Christmas verse that we always quote, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
Not just any son. The son of God. You know, God's greatest gift to this planet has been his son, Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins. There was a forever change, an irreversible change in Jesus' person when he became a man. He is forever God, forever man. He is God-man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, let's look at this now and make sure we get it as I close. Verse number one says that the Word was at the Father's side. At the Father's side was the Word. But when we get to verse number 18, at the Father's side is the Son. Ah, it's significant. In the beginning was the Word, but by the time he was born in Bethlehem and took up his ministry, he is the Son, the Word of God, the Son of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And he is the Son. The rest of the book of John, and we've been preaching about it and talking about it and extending the gospel message from it. For over 50 weeks, we've been talking about this wonderful book, but here's what we really need to understand. The rest of the book of John relates to how the Son says what the Father says, did what the Father commanded, and accomplished what the Father desired. That's the rest of the book of John. 1 through 18 is the, one through 18 is the forecast of the book. 1 through 18 is the introduction. From verse 19 through the end of the book, it's all about what did, Jesus, what did God want him to say? What did God want him to do? The works that you've given me to do. Listen to these verses. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak, John 12, 50. If I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me, John 10, 37. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do, John 17, 4. And here is the greatest gift of all that God has given us that we can celebrate at Christmas is that you can know God, be forgiven for your sins, go to heaven because Jesus came to bring you to him. This is the greatest gift. It brings the greatest gifts. And is it, is it any wonder that we get more generous in light of Christmas? I want to challenge everyone here today, believers, I want you to listen to me, open your hearts Open your hearts to the Jesus of the Gospels. Open your heart to the gift of the Father. Open your heart to the will of the Father. Open your heart to the plan of the Father. And then open your pocket and give generously to support the gospel work. Give generously to relieve hungry people, to clothe destitute people. Give generously to bless your family and to show that you know God. Because that's the whole point, isn't it? This is eternal life. Remember verse 18 says he came so that we might know God. This is eternal life that we know the one true God and his son whom he sent. So the question becomes this morning, do you know God? Do you, have you do you and have you trusted in Jesus? There's only two responses to these gifts. Look at verse number 11 of your passage where Andrew preached last week. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. We can reject this truth, or we can receive this truth. There's only two answers. Only two group of people. There's only two groups of people on the planet Earth. Those who have received Jesus, those who have yet to receive Jesus.
There, that's the only two groups. There are saved people in the world, and there are lost people in the world. You say, well, I, I just hadn't made up my mind yet. Well, listen, you, we were born in the state of rejection. We're born in the state of sin. We're already condemned, the scriptures say in chapter 3 of the book of John. But as many as will receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Don't merely receive the celebration of his birth. Receive him who was born as a human. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this passage of scripture. And I thank you for the gift, the gifts, and the giver. Thank you so very much for this time of the year. Thank you for this passage of scripture that we've looked at this morning. Thank you for your son, Father. Thank you that unto us <laughs> in human flesh, so that we can relate to him and understand him and know that he understands us, you came in human flesh. You took all of our sins on yourself and you died on the cross for us. And help us to not just treat information like that as some traditional message that we hear from year to year at Christmas. But help us to understand that that is the, the biggest happening in all of history. Is that Jesus came, took on a human body so that he could die. Live 33 and a half years, a perfect and sinless life. He did what you, he's taught what you told him to teach. He worked and did the works that you gave him to work. And then he went to Calvary and accomplished what you intended for him to accomplish. He died for our sins. Thank you, Father, for sending your sons. Thank you that he rose from the dead. Thank you that at Christmas we can receive such a gift. In Jesus' name.